G'day, mate. 40 here. We're going academic today. I just read a very compelling new book called The Star Chamber of Stanford on the Secret Trial and Invisible Persecution of a Stanford Law Fellow. The author is Ronnie Goodman. Ronnie, where did you write this book? Where did I write it? I wrote it in uh, various places. Uh, Its very beginnings uh, were actually during the time related, though that was was still... uh, in coets, but you know, after after my fate was uh, sealed at Stanford, I was uh, in uh, in Israel for uh, for a few years. Uh, I've I've uh, connections there, and I was considering living there, and I, I certainly uh, developed its foundations as well. And then the rest, uh, you know, um, since since then, you know, I was also working on the uh, companion volumes, uh, like uh, conservative claims of cultural oppression. As I as I know, which is actually significantly longer than the published memoir, and I had to do that as well. So you know, I think there were there were a number of years when I didn't work on the book at all. I was just working on the uh, theoretical uh, the theoretical stuff. But uh, once that was in good enough shape, I turned my attention fully to the book. I would say probably since uh, maybe fall uh, 2017, I was. Uh, doing that exclusively uh, from a from a writing point of view and I just uh and that was that was that was done here in uh in, in New York I moved back to uh New York around uh, around 2013 so I guess I gave you both the uh, the where and the uh and the when yeah and I'm going to encourage you to look at your cam a little bit more I okay just, yeah, sorry about that yeah, this no, is, uh... no worries yeah, yeah, is it is it good now? Yeah, yeah, that's that's good. Okay. So, sure. so right. get the, the get the full. Well, I just wanted, wanted to make sure I wasn't wasn't uh, uh, missing the microphone, but it is designed no. to catch my voice. So yeah, and so tell me why did you write the book? Well, you know, I, I think uh, I'm going to give you an answer. I, I mean, we're going to probably conceptualize the answer on a number of levels. So let me start with one that's uh, consistent with the. Uh, the introduction of the book, I, you know, I, I, I start off by uh, quoting that paragraph from, uh, from Rousseau's uh, Discourse on Arts and Sciences, the, the, the origin of, uh, of intellectual life uh, and uh, intellectual achievement originates in our, uh, our vices and uh, not our, our virtues and uh, pride being uh, foremost among those, those vices. And I think that's, uh, that's certainly true on... Uh, on some level, because at at the time at uh, at at Stanford, you know, I was uh, committed high hell or high water to this uh, to this research project, which I was I was hoping would uh, open some doors to an academic career for for reasons I I, I described uh, throughout the memo. It it didn't, but I think I was uh, too proud to surrender to fate. So yes, you know, all of the usual avenues for communicating my ideas. Uh, you know, had been had been cut off, cut off. You know, obviously, I could you know post stuff on Academia or SSRN or uh, or whatnot, but that's that's not going to get anyone's attention. So I, I I realized that I would I would not surrender to fate. So how to proceed? Well, you know, I I, I write this is the uh, the story of a term paper that came to life, uh, the 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 term paper that was first written for Stanford before it had to become about, about Stanford. And it, it, it had to become about Stanford because that was the only way of uh, resuscitating my research agenda by uh, tying me in, in some way to the prestige of, of that institution, which, I mean, I had to some extent just by virtue of having studied there and, and had the fellowship, but I, I would have to do so, I would have to do 
uh, take that to a different level in, in order to actually uh, disseminate my ideas. So it was it was uh, pride and uh, and necessity. Tell me a little bit about your ancestors and your parents. So uh, yeah, it's a it's a it's a convoluted story, and I you know I, I can't fill in all the gaps, even though I've I've asked about it. So uh, I was born in uh, in Strasbourg, uh, France, which is you know right there on the uh, on the German border. Uh, lots of lots of wars have been fought uh, over it, but um, my my ethnic origins aren't French, uh, strictly speaking. So uh, my mother was uh, born in uh, in Tunisia. And I think uh, I think her ancestors had been there for a few uh, hundred years. I imagine they got uh, kicked out of Spain uh, like the other Jews there around 1492 with the uh, with the Inquisition. So that's the story on uh, on, on on their end. Uh, uh, my dad was also born in Strasbourg, but his uh, father uh, was from uh, from Bavaria. And how far his roots go back there. I'm not sure, but I've been given to understand that Gouldman actually has Dutch origins. So uh, he he might have uh, emerged uh, from from or his, his lineage might have emerged from Holland at some point. I'm not sure. Uh, my uh, grandmother on my uh, dad's side, so she was born in uh, in Alexandria, Egypt, and. Um, you know, later later moved to uh, France to uh, marry my uh, grandfather on my dad's side. Uh, her origins, I'm I'm not uh, sure. I mean, I've heard some some stories that you know she had uh, lineage in the uh, in the, the Russian Empire of, of of the time. So you know, she could be of uh, of Ashkenazi uh, lineage, notwithstanding that she was born in uh, in Egypt, and uh, so. Basically, uh, my uh, father studied, uh, he got his PhD in urban planning in Israel, uh, and uh, after doing undergraduate in France, my mother's family left, they moved to France once uh, uh, Tunisia won independence from France. They lived in France for a, uh, a few years and then moved to, uh, moved to, uh, moved to Israel. And that's where my mother grew up, and, uh, and that's where they, they met because my dad was studying there. And then they moved back to France and uh, I was born. And when I was four, we moved to the U.S. because my dad got a job at Ohio State. And so you lived most of your childhood in uh, what is that Columbus, Ohio? Columbus, Ohio. Yeah, it's, a, it's a suburb, uh, Worthington, Ohio, to be exact. It's a, just a, one of the, the northern suburbs of, uh, of, of Columbus, you know, pretty, pretty. Uh, Middle America, not not completely parochial. It's a you know it's a big enough city. It's a university town, but uh, yeah, pretty much middle America nonetheless. Would it be fair to describe you as a rootless cosmopolitan? Um, I, I guess you know by 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 uh, necessity, cosmopolitanism uh, has not been a an ideal towards which I've aspired. But but looking back at the course of. Uh, events and all the places I've lived and different career routes I've, uh, I've, I've, I've pursued, uh, it, it's, it's kind of hard to argue against that, that conclusion, I guess. So the, the easiest way to understand my work is to understand my lack of a, a relationship with my father and just ongoing rebellion against father figures. Just curious, right. what was your relationship like with your father? Well, you know, it has, it has varied, uh, over time. It, 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 it's, it's quite good now. It's been, uh, Poor at uh, at other times. Certainly, the the uh, events at Stanford uh, complicated relations with, uh, with 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 everyone. Uh, 
you know, given the the strangeness of the events uh, events related, uh, I would I would certainly say that yeah, I have a uh, rebellious rebellious streak. Now, whether that uh, you know originated in some family dynamic or in some other way, you know, I'm not I'm not certain, but certainly I can I can discern the the the, the the roots of those tendencies already in in high school, where I would you know run for student council and give anti-establishment speeches or write anti-establishment you know criticizing school decisions on the parking lot in the in the uh, in, in, a, in a sardonic kind of way in the uh, in the school newspaper. So it was all it was all trivial stuff. But but looking looking back, you, you know, you see you see that uh, character is destiny. Yeah, and just around the bases, what was your relationship like with your mother? That you know also uh, has has uh, you know gone back and forth. You know she is uh, well, she was she passed away a few years ago, but she was uh, she was manic depressive. You know in, in a in a in, in a serious way, and what that meant varied from period to period. You know there were there were times, well, you know, a long time when you know modern medicine was able to keep it under under control and facilitate. Uh, a different, uh, a different, uh, a decent, a decent life. But nevertheless, you know, when someone is, uh, is, is, is struggling with something like that, there are going to be all sorts of, uh, of external, external uh, repercussions. And, you know, likewise, you know, uh, with events of Stanford, that was also, you know, quite, quite difficult uh, to convey to her, though she did have some sympathy, you know, when I, when she saw some of my writing, she wasn't completely unsympathetic, but there was sort of this, it's tendency like okay, fine, but you know it's fine you're doing this, but you know, treat it as a as a as a, as a hobby, move on to more serious things, and, and you know, one who has read the book will understand that I could not treat it as a hobby. So you know that was uh, a source of friction. There's a question out of left field, but I think it's also applicable. If uh, you're applying for an academic job and they ask you what are your pronouns, what would be your internal reaction to that sort of question? Um, I, I would find that quite strange. Now, of course, that was that was <laughs> at the time. You know, the last time I applied for uh, an academic job, that was uh, I don't know, probably around uh, 2000, 2000, 2010, and that was not in there yet. You know, I I do think you know. I guess uh, you know what is my opinion of the transgender movement? Well, I I, I certainly don't 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 discount that there may be something you know authentic uh about it when somebody says well i'm really i'm you know physically male but uh but uh i have a female gender identity i'm not i'm not sure what exactly that means i'm not saying it's 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 inauthentic uh, i am saying i don't think that we understand it very well i'm saying that even people who are transgender don't really know how to articulate it well because to kind of say that you know People's basic worldview uh, as as divided between males and females, you know, I think we can add nuance to that and, and show that maybe reality is, is is more complicated than that clean bifurcation. But you know, for you know the, the extreme of the transgender movement, will say, well, you, you know, this this basic foundational way of even thinking about the world is this massive social illusion. I don't think people are going to swallow that and so when they ask you know what are your uh pronouns you know on one hand that's that's fine in in the sense that if somebody did have atypical pronouns i suppose you would want to know that but i think it's it's also kind of 
resented in, in as much as the, the subtext of these apparently benign requests is that your whole basic understanding of the world is uh, is an illusion and you're you know you're kind of a a fool for having fallen into that i you know i don't i don't think that's true and i, I certainly don't think it's 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 good uh politically because that's people are just going to reject that great and one one other question oh yeah if you were applying for an academic position and they asked you to write a diversity statement, what would be your reaction to that? And what do you think you'd write? It would, it would be uh, very uh, artificial. You know, there would be nothing that would come from my heart. If if what we mean, we mean anything I could say authentically would be very, you know, uh, banal, I think. Yeah. I mean, you know, Diversity is not a bad uh, thing, uh, but there are many different kinds of diversity, and it's not uh, surely the only consideration. So it would just be banal like that. But you know, from the heart, uh, I I never, uh, you know, it's not it's not something that resonates with me uh, so so much. You know, I, I I understand that of course. You know, if you've got a uh, you know historically oppressed group that 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 group identity is going to be more, you know, inevitably salient uh, to them. And, you know, I, and so I know it's, it's kind of facile just to say, you know, just, just be colorblind. So I wouldn't want to urge that in a, in a, fa- in a facile way, but uh, on the other hand, I wouldn't want to uh, discount it as a, as an ideal uh, all, all, altogether. And which, which you know, the diversity movement certainly uh, risks risks doing. Okay, there are hundreds of law schools in the United States. What sets Stanford Law School apart? Um, well, you know, in 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 a sense, and this is something that I address in the uh, in the preface. Uh, you know. Um, Anything that sets it apart in my in my in my experience, and I don't I don't want to speak outside of, the, of that experience. So you know, today if somebody were to ask me, oh, I could go to Harvard, or I could go to Stanford, you know, what do you think? I, I would be in no position to say, well, you know, Stanford has clinics A, B, C, and I think that's that's you know cutting edge and innovative. That may well be the case. It's probably the case, but that's not something uh, I know. I, I I can I can speak to. Uh, personally, so I, I can I can only address that from the point of view of, uh, of 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 my experience as related in the memoir, and in connection with that, I would say that in terms of the underlying target of my critique, which are the cultural pathologies of academia, nothing sets it apart as far as I can tell. There is a common academic ethos which is going to pervade uh, different institutions. The fact that they are ge- geographically separate is going to have a uh, minimal or no effect on that. So from the point of view of my negative critique, I say, you know, nothing sets it apart, though it is set apart in my experience, given given my the nature of my allegations. And I, I try to frame that in a positive way, which is this is the place where uh, my thesis came to life where the uh the higher truth of conservative claims of cultural oppression was articulated three-dimensionally and autobiographically and and certainly 
you know, notwithstanding the antagonism, you have to give credit to uh, anyone who can help bring that about, which the, the memoir, which the memoir does. How would you describe your politics? For example, I could describe my own as paleoconservative. How would you describe yours? You know, I mean, as far as uh, if you were going, as I, as I say in the book, you know, if you were going to go down a uh, a checklist of, uh, of of issues, I would be, you know, by and large on 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 the liberal side. You know, I have a uh, my my worldview is maybe it's not completely scientific, but it's scientific. So, for example, I have a hard time uh, believing that a, a you know a, a three week old fetus has any quality. Uh, that's worthy of a moral uh, regard. If you had, uh, you know, a more, I guess, a more metaphysical worldview, you might see things differently. Uh, as far as economics, uh, there I have really very little truck with um, with conservatives. I mean, certainly, uh, you know, government regulation can go too far in certain instances. I'm not disputing that. I would say, you know, for example, in in, in France, where uh, it's it's almost impossible to fire somebody without going to court and you know, justifying it rigorously, that's, that's not a good thing. But the idea that, you know, if we have some form of universal health care or universal health insurance, that somehow that is the, uh, you know, the road to serfdom, uh, or that we're <laughs> going to lose uh, the virtue of, of self-reliance, you know, that I find kind of, uh, kind of absurd. I know that I, I think probably paleoconservatives might, might share that sentiment, as uh, as well, you know, as as civilization has developed, we have to do fewer things for, our, for for ourselves. Yeah, it used to be if your farmhouse is burning, you've got to put it out. There's no fire department. If somebody steals from something, someone from you, very likely you're on your own or your clan is on your own. So the whole process of modernity is actually relieving individuals of individual responsibilities for certain things, so they can turn their attention to other things. And I think something like uh, guaranteed healthcare and and some level of the welfare state generally is basically just a uh, a rational extension of that. Mm -hmm. And would you attend a same sex wedding? Yeah. And do you feel any in internal revulsion towards same sex marriage? No, I, I mean it, it's like I mean it's. Obviously, you, you know, um, since, you know, to the extent if you're heterosexual, yeah, you, you may find the idea of homosexual sex, you know, quite uh, unappealing. But, but, but to me, that's unappealing in the same way that, you know, hard-boiled eggs are unappealing. Like, yeah, I, I don't like the, the, the taste of it or the thought of tasting it. But, you know, that is simply a subjective preference. So I'm not I'm not going to think about it. It's it's not really relevant. And so and, you know, so likewise, no, it's just something it's just a matter of indifference to me, you know, by uh, by by and large. I don't let, you know, my uh, subjective uh, predilections uh, transmute into any kind of moral judgment. And what about. But let's say you had a friend who you discovered had just a really strong internal revulsion towards same-sex marriage, couldn't even articulate a good argument against it, just had a strong internal revulsion against it, and yeah. on that basis would not attend one. What would you, your reaction to such a person be? 
Well, I, I, I've had such a friend, and it was a, it was a long time ago, back in grad school at uh, at Indiana. He uh, actually uh, he wasn't necessarily didn't necessarily feel like that way at first, but he was kind of a bit of a lost soul as as well. You know, did, you know, abused as a as a kid, and he was for, you know he was for a while uh, considering um, you know moving into into uh, 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 Judaism, but ultimately he turned to you know Orthodox uh, Christianity, out of his, you know, Greek Church or Russian Church or something like that. But you know they're they're fairly uh, fairly conservative, and uh, yeah, and so he certainly voiced those kinds of uh, of, of, of 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 sentiments. You know he was uh, you know uh, and, 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 and you know other forms of disgust as uh, as as well. He was you know. Uh, more pro-Israel than uh, than I was, and he had you know probably a certain revulsion towards towards you know Arabs or Muslims as, as well. And I certainly you know didn't didn't approve of that. But you know on on the other hand, I guess that is what separates me from uh, the woke culture. You know that that those attitudes are not so uh, viscerally repugnant to me that I would not be able to handle this person or even be their friend uh necessarily you know I, I see those as uh you know misguided and uh and regrettable uh but you know they're also kind of you know human in a, in, in a certain way if you understand you know the full complexity of uh of humanity and uh you know people have always had you know uh mores and, and believing certain holding certain things strongly has uh often led to a little sort of uh corresponding revulsion to things out, out, outside of that. So, you know, I, I, I would say I, I'm not uh, repelled by homosexuality and I'm not repelled by uh, repulsion by homosexuality yeah. either. You know, maybe I, if I was gay, that would probably be different. I understand that I would, I would have a different, different perspective, but, you know, and maybe it's because I'm a little bit too, uh, you know, aloof, you know, the, yeah. uh, the philosopher in the clouds. And so, okay, well, I disagree, but, uh, you know, the, may, 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 maybe I, I hold myself to a standard or live by a standard or I'm captured by a standard, which it would be uh, unreasonable to uh, ask of most of most people, you know, for better or ill. Yeah. Um, so that, yeah, that's that, that's how I would I would got sort it. of describe my, my reflexes. Got, got it. What is Stanford Law School's reputation among elite American legal scholars? Say that again. What is Stanford Law's reputation? Oh, I, I mean, I, I, think, I think it's 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 certainly uh, in 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 the very top. I would imagine the top three or four. Uh, you know, I mean, on you know, U.S. News and World Report, it's usually ranked uh, number number two or three. You know, behind Yale or behind Yale and Stanford. Now, that is kind of a a crude measure, and certainly most legal scholars would you know reject that as as amateurs. But and, and they have their own ideas about you know. Uh, who's doing the most cutting edge uh, research that's going to vary from person to person. But yeah, Stanford is, is certainly uh, very much up there, you know, as I say in the book, it's really, it doesn't have the same level of, you know, pop culture recognition as Harvard, which is going to be, you know, in all sorts of movies. Uh, I went to Harvard law school or, or even Harvard generally, but uh, in terms of its concrete reputation, I think, I think it's right up there. Okay. And what were your expectations going into? So you entered Stanford Law second year. You, you did your first first year of law school at the University of Texas. So that's right. What were your expectations for your presumably two year experience at Stanford Law? 
Well, I didn't. I didn't necessarily have expectations, but I had a had a goal. And you know, the perverse thing is that I, I actually realized the initial goal or the initial stage of my goal very effectively. As I as I you know explained, you know, I, I had a great time in Texas. Uh, learned a lot, but from the point of view of academic careers, you know, uh, Stanford and, and and kindred places were were optimal. So you know, I went in there. Um, I, you know, I wasn't didn't really think about what to expect. I just thought this is what I need to do. And then, you know, I actually did, did pull it off uh, with a fellowship afterwards. Things went awry, of course, as I relate, but um, you know um, it was, I, I, I would say certainly there was uh, in terms of the law school itself, putting, putting aside, you know, my research and my own ambitions from the point of view of just experience, certainly uh Texas was was better in the sense that I was in the same cohort with everybody. Everybody was a first year, so I made friends. I had my 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 group. By the time I arrived at Stanford, you know, it was the second year. Uh, people already knew each other, and yeah, you know, you could that, you could work your way in to a certain extent, but it wasn't like that that same bonding experience of the first year where you're all there and new, and you're all freaking out about your grades and, and, and the material that one L of law school is really a, uh, a special experience. And, and, and so, and, and, you know, by comparison with that, you know, it's not because it was Stanford, it's because of, of the fact that I transferred. That was the genesis of your, your work on conservative victimology. Well, you know, it's, it's, um, I, I think it, it started, even though, you know, I, as I, I, I described my views as uh, overall, uh, overall liberal, I, I certainly had a, uh, still had a, a visceral un, un, unease with it because, you know, I, I do think that, you know, even though ultimately if it, if it comes up to policies, I'm, I'm going to be liberal. It's, it's certainly the case that uh, liberalism sort of exiles and uh, excommunicates aspect of uh, human nature that are, you know, for better or ill, uh, natural. And, uh, it's, you know, some people supersede, I don't want to say supersede, because that's a, that applies a, a judgment, but I say, you know, suspend those, uh, to use a neutral term more effectively than, than others, and they become liberals, but it's not necessarily reasonable to expect that of, of everyone, and sort of, and certainly uh, liberal, by their own principles, liberals are compelled to to recognize that how people are differently situated for a, a, a variety of cultural and uh, biological and accidental reasons, and to think that anybody, you know, could just anybody who just had a, a clean intentions or a good heart could sort of snap their fingers and or would snap their fingers to adopt the liberal worldview. That was that was kind of. Uh, facile to me. And, and at first, that was just sort of a, a, a very visceral sense. Uh, and and I, I pursued the project in order to articulate it, you know, and it was it was so visceral, in fact, that, you know, even even a year into the fellowship, I just, as I describe, I'd only just begun succeeding in in articulating it. What are the skills that make for a good lawyer? Well, um, c- certainly, um, uh, this is this is underrated, but certainly a uh, a tolerance for uh, for tedium, yeah, and to sort of just be able to embrace, get this sense of oh, I just finished the task, I you know I wrote a letter to the judge, uh, 
complaining that the other side hasn't produced their discovery and got that done, you know, check mark. And that's not necessarily so interesting or intellectually challenging, but that's a lot of the work. And so you have to keep yourself in a, a mindset where you can derive uh, some, some meaning. So that's, that's sort of, you know, the, the underrated uh, quality, I, I'd say, you know, at the, at the, at the other end, certainly uh, the ability to, uh, to make arguments to, uh, you know, persuade, um, and even to an extent to manipulate arguments, but without insulting the judge's intelligence, uh, those are, uh, th- those are, those are valuable skills too. Uh, why don't you give me a, a five-minute summary uh, of your book, preferably without repeating points that we've already covered? Um, that is something I would have a very hard time uh, doing, even though obviously I understand that listeners want to hear it. And and, and the problem is is this, and hopefully this will give them you know some kind of of indication. Okay, so let me. What I can say generally. Yeah, it is. It is sort of a fall from grace. I sort of, I, I was able to create certain high hopes among the faculty there, but owing to uh, my conflicts, I, I would say not, not with them personally as individuals, though it led to that too. But with the norms of academia, that uh, relationship progressively soured, though in very subtle ways that went unacknowledged at the time. And that eventually led to the uh, conflagration, which I, uh, I describe as my, my, my gaslighting. And, you know, the problem with, with any kind of summaries, sort of, you know, on the one hand, I can say, uh, well, you know, it's a, a lot of it is a critique of certain, uh, the intellectual norms of, of academia, which are, in fact, quite uh, intellectually stifling and reflect a certain conservatism by the liberal elites, which is ultimately hypocritical given the uh, demands that they, you know, impose on society. So, you know, if I were to say that, you know, some people might, might, might find that it somewhat interesting. Uh, other people might find it banal. They say, you know, well, yeah, we know there's a lot that's irrational about academia. Are you really telling us anything new? So if I put it that way, you know, I'm not going to get that much reaction. Now, the, the other pull of what the memoir is about is, is, is the gaslighting. And as, as I, you know, you said, it, it sounds kind of incredible uh, to you because I'm saying that there was a form of communication, uh, but solely through ambiguation and intimation and illusion that we had, we had a form of communication that, that it was ultimately subterranean and had to be decoded against this background which all parties understood and none knew you know if i put it that way it's gonna sound either really weird or you're not gonna probably won't know what i'm talking about if i talk about if i say that that the the school website itself embodied uh, a, a message which was at the the epicenter of this whole thing well that's if i just put it that way it's gonna sound it's gonna sound crazy so you know but the only way to put those two aspects of it together and realize that the book is neither banal nor crazy is to is to read it and so of course i'm i'm asking when i ask people to read it i am asking them to undertake a certain a certain leap of faith and you know maybe this will help persuade them to do that but but it is a leap of faith you know yeah and and 
from from my own experience, so I've lived my life as a dissident and a heretic who's been thrown out of almost every community I've ever joined. Yeah, I read about that. And it is no fun. It's absolutely no fun whatsoever. And yeah. I can't overstate the toll of having people around you think you're crazy. The, that just took an enormous toll on me. That that right. practically drove me crazy. The more other people regarded me as crazy, I'm just curious yeah. about your experience. Well, I I, I I totally agree with that. And in fact, um, if we talk about uh, maybe let me let me, let me uh, add an addendum to uh, what I earlier said about why I wrote the book. In a sense, because the book is really it is a shield against that charge. Okay, you can you could say that, and but I can say read the book, and if they say you're crazy. I can say, why exactly don't you accept argument A, B, C, and D? And, you know, you know um, I had a, one of my editors who was really, she was really great, uh, but she was, she was, you know, skeptical of the, the you know, the facially outlandish uh, contentions. But then, you know, when I confronted her with specific arguments, you know, it's not like she could refute them, but she just said, oh, well, well you know, you have the ability to argue that the moon is made of, made of green cheese. So yeah, you can make these arguments and I can't refute them, but I still I still don't believe you, which is fine. That I can deal. At least now I have a shield they can say I can say, look, is this do you do you really think a crazy person could write this on any conventional definition of of crazy, you know, a non-metaphorical definition of crazy? I always wanted to say obviously not. And and the, the book is, I hope, what establishes it. Now, I can't overstate my desire to sit at the cool kids table. Like, I love the cool kids. I love the successful. I mean, I love that stuff. I really, 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 really want to belong to the cool kids. There's only one thing in the world that I want more, and that is to pursue what I think is true and to say what I think is true. Yeah, but I'm just curious. Do you do you also have a significant, you know, through the, you know, nose against the glass, kind of looking in at the cool kids table, uh, desire, or has that been come uh, muted in you? Look, in 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 in, in a sense, you know, I, I certainly I have I have those thoughts sometimes because I think you know, okay, I've, I've got a, I've got a, you know good paying job, you know, I'm, 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 I'm fine. I'm not, I'm not working at Starbucks. I'm not, you know, picking up the garbage, but I certainly see that, you know, a lot of, you know, a lot of former law students my age or even significantly uh, uh, younger, certainly from, you know, Stanford are, are certainly further ahead in their careers than I am. You know, they're, they're, they're partners at firms as opposed to an associate, a senior associate. They're partners at, at, at firms where they're really making hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars each each year i you know i kind of i i look back i say what why am i not there i have the same degree i had the the right the right grades you know i can you know if we are if we're in court and and they write a motion to dismiss i can defeat them so i i you know i can i know i can stand toe to toe to them so but why am i not sitting at the uh you know the cool kids uh table but uh, i i try to say you know in in the end just you've got to embrace your fate you try to you know walk those those two worlds between you know establishing a, a palatable place in society but uh also uh pursuing your heart's passion which is a book and you know i've i've tried to affect uh 
a compromise between those two uh, to, as best I could because, you know, I, I didn't really have a choice in the matter. Now, I, I'm thinking off the top of my head. So for the normie who, who's watching this and thinking, okay, is there a larger point here other than this individual's guys, you know, fight for his reputation? One way that I would summarize the larger point is that the Western world is largely run by a liberal left consensus. And this liberal left consensus is as flawed and deserving of critique as any other attempt at a worldview. That would be one way I would summarize your scholarship. Is that fair? Yeah, it, it's it, it's it certainly does because you know at the end of the day, even if it's it's more true than other worldviews, it certainly doesn't have a monopoly on on, on 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 truth. And you know, given its its prestige, you know, and given the subtlety of its prejudices, uh, because there is a lot of truth there too, but there's there's it's also false in let's say in certain subtle ways like when i when i discussed uh transgenderism just as, as, as one example it certainly you know merits critiques and, and I, I kind of always felt like you know in law school you've got lots of people who are like you know they're writing you know articles you know defending certain you know international uh human rights norms uh you know right to abortion various demands for various kinds of uh of equality and i i always felt it's not that i opposed that necessarily but i felt that they were uh reaching for the uh, the low hanging fruit the the higher hanging fruit is is the elites the people who you know have the cultural power uh you know the, the might of stanford as i as i as i describe it that that always had a, a greater greater allure to me that was a certain kind of of, of, of hubris perhaps and it, it it led to the tumult uh i i describe but uh yeah i i have again it maybe comes back to this primordial you know rebelliousness i, I can say it doesn't matter even if you have you know 75 percent of the truth or 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 whatnot i'm not going to rest on my laurels Let's let's step outside and step away for a minute from your personal story. What were the key intellectual breakthrough points in your journey of scholarship of conservative victimology? And why is it even important to have a scholarship of conservative victimology? Well, the question is, is, is there some sort of underlying inequality between uh, socially instituted inequality between liberals and uh and conservatives, which, you know, the, the liberals, you know, won't acknowledge and that no one can really articulate uh, very, very effectively on either side of, of the spectrum. And I, I, I felt that, you know, people sometimes have very flawed articulations of, of true things. Uh, certainly that was the case with, with me with the, the gaslighting. The articulation has become more refined over the years. Initially it was certainly very flawed, but I still I still believed it was it was true. And uh likewise this resentment towards liberalism, even though yeah, it may it may lead to a lot of stupid statements and a lot of uh cheap shots as well uh there there is an underlying inequality in the sense that you have you have certain default 
uh, human impulses, uh, you know, in part religious, uh, but also related to, you know, the ego and pure uh, animal self-affirmation, which you will find, you know, among among all human beings. Uh, but the the elites have the privilege of sublimating that aspect of human nature so as to appear more more civilized. And from that facially more civilized vantage point, they have then sort of the, the further privilege of, you know, inveighing against everybody else, not realizing that if you take their concern for equality to its logical conclusion, their very ability to critique inequality is, is a product of a different kind of, of inequality. Namely, they can channel their, their, you know, their traditionalism, their uh, authoritarianism into these academic norms where, which nobody on the outside, you know, is gonna pay that much attention to. And so there, there is this, this sense that they're, they're getting away with, with something. And so, you know, given my, my adversarial attitude, uh, that's what I hope to experience, to, to articulate. Um, and uh, and uh, theoretically well, and in yeah. life. Mm -hmm. and, yeah, go ahead. And, and you, you haven't finished and you haven't pu published your book yet, uh, even though drafts of it are available on, on your website and academia.edu. What do you need to do? What do you need to accomplish? What do you need to make concrete to put this book into final form? Well, you know, actually, I was, I was you know, starting to reread uh, conservative claims of cultural oppression. You know, I think, uh, you know, I would probably... If I were to go through it a few times, I would find, you know, I would, I would probably find some better word choices, some better locutions. But as far as the, uh, the thesis itself, you know, I think it's it's very close to publishable. Whether anybody would ever actually publish it, you know, I don't know. I mean, certainly the the the, the length is in and of itself uh, it would be an obstacle, no matter who I was or what I was I was I was saying, you know. But given that I'm essentially no one and, and saying something which is, you know, adversarial to the dominant dispensation, you know, the, 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 the length is, you know, one more huge, huge problem. So, you know, yeah, it would be it would be nice if, if uh, somebody from, you know, some kind of, you know, press that would be willing to, you know, take a chance was maybe it was drawn to it through the memoir. Right. The, the memoir is, is eye catching. Uh, well, whatever, certainly much more so than the uh theoretical work so you know that that was my 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 ideal hope yeah that that the memoir could facilitate the publication of the academic stuff you know whether that's going to happen you know i don't know but i'm certainly what i can't say you know i'm not even really thinking about it just because i'm i i, I i'm so exhausted now from from the whole thing you know it's only been uh since december i put i put the finishing touches on the memoir and 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 since then i was you know working on like marketing and learning about uh self-publication and 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 so forth um so I, i'm just too exhausted i i hope i hope something good will happen but yeah. i'm i'm too tired to actively uh pursue it right now i've got to live life in other ways yeah and what were the most important pieces of feedback that you got on your memoir prior to your publishing it well, you know, they were they were they were quite uh, they they were they were quite varied. You know, there were certainly um, 
some it, it's kind of you know like like much else I say it's like schizophrenic in the sense of going from one extreme uh, to the next. So for example, I I sent it out to agents. Uh, almost no one took an interest, which I think is pretty standard these days. If you don't have a if you're not already famous or have a social media presence, from what I'm told, one had some interest in it. They read it. They obviously saw something there, but they ultimately decided it was too academic. So you know when something like that happens, they go, well, okay, so I've got I've got to create my own imprint. I've got no choice. You know, you feel you feel kind of like you know a loser. But when I had a uh, when I had the, the the penultimate version of the draft. I just sent it to a proofreader, and uh, this proofreader, even though he proofread me, he was also an editor who had worked for 25 years with, you know, big presses, um, big um, uh, academic presses too. You know, when he read it, he responded, "This is this is you know the most intelligent writer, maybe with the strongest command of the English language that I've ever worked with." So then, you, of course, you feel great, and uh, so it's always been these extremes between like. People thinking this is this is you know sweet sweet generous originality, and others thinking you're wasting your life and and this is uh, this is nonsense and and you know and that that's still that's still going on you know uh, I sent it out for like various reviews I got a uh, you know a lot of far five star reviews but there was like you know a three star review too where you know she saw essentially nothing of value. Uh, in it, just found it, found it, you know, ponderous and repetitive and, and, and whatnot. So it goes, it goes, it goes back and forth. Uh, but, you know, I mean, assuming, you know, it, it, and, and likewise, uh, as to the specific gaslighting contentions, I've had um, intelligent people who were readily persuaded of my claims. I've had intelligent people who are completely uh, met intelligent people who are completely dismissive of my claims, and you know, all sorts of people in between those. And so they're sort of you know, you go back and forth. Uh, you know, am I crazy or am I not? Uh, am, am I saying anything original or am I not? So I, I, I assume that experience is uh, some version of that experience is you know pretty pretty common for most uh, artist types. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Now, let's talk about some of the, the lead characters. And the, the number one character in the book, from my understanding, is Barbara Freed. So yeah. Who is Barbara Freed? Well, you know, she was she was uh, uh, one of the two professors in one of the uh, classes I took my last year at Stanford. And um, she, you know, she clearly liked my work and she was the one who offered the fellowships. So that's why, you know, she is, in a sense, the main uh the main character also because I have the most email communications uh, from her. So, you know, I, and this is something that I, I try to uh, emphasize, you know, I'm not attacking anyone personally. No, I'm not, they're all, you know, nice, nice people who are committed to their chosen profession. No question of that, but, but, you know, I am, I am critiquing the norms of that uh, profession as they were embodied in these, uh, in these in these people so yeah so i sort of do seize upon her as kind of a a, a paradigm case of certain academic uh pathologies um not hard to do because you wouldn't be successful if you didn't have those pathologies to one degree or or another um you know and uh so i have uh i have certain you know critiques of her worldview but i think uh, on 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 the other side i also uh acknowledge uh, certain of her her virtues namely that she kind of 
from words that she said, you know, said she has a, a certain prophetic uh, prescience. Uh, so, you know, I, I think she had an intuitive sense that this conflict was there and, and was, and, and Joe as, as well, they had, they had a certain intuitive sense that there was conflict and they thought it could be managed and it, it couldn't be. But I, 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 I think they, notwithstanding how things turn out, I think that both she and, uh, and Joe saw a, uh, a certain uh, potential in me, which uh, a lot of others uh, didn't. And I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for, for that, though, you know, that potential could not unfold, unfold according to the rules which they had uh, prescribed and, uh, and hence the conflict. Now, how do you think, in a safe space, uh, Barbara Freed would talk about her experience with you? How would she describe it? Well, look, people move on with their lives. So, you know, when, you know, Josh Cohn responding, you know, uh, uh, he had a good enough opinion of me, but I left no, you know, lasting in, impression. That's perfectly fine with me because people move on with their, their lives and there's absolutely no, you know, no reason why they, this many years later, would really have uh, you know any strong feelings about me one way or the other? Maybe whether they'll have strong feelings about the the, the publication of the book is 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 something else. I don't I don't know, but yeah, I I, I wouldn't expect uh, her or anyone else. Uh, I would expect me to be very important to them to to any of them uh, because they have the right to move on with their lives. But of course, I have the right not to move on with my life. You know, also which describes why I have been clinging to this experience and seeking to articulate it for so many years. Yeah, but I think there's there's more, we can do more with, with her. Let's, let's yeah. just, just focus on her because she's the, the paradigmatic, okay. she's like the, the paradigmatic both instigator and crusher of, of your dream. Right. Is that fair? Yeah, yeah, I, you know, okay, yeah, but but I I I do describe uh, things in that manner, but I also highlight the other story that I can I can understand like she from from her perspective as the person who sort of went on a, out on a limb to you know give me this fellowship and has certain professional aspirations, you know, my my conduct uh, was highly delinquent. So, yeah, so, you know, I, I, I try to keep that tension in, uh, in, in view. Um, you know, as you can tell from, from the book, you know, there wasn't really, beyond a certain point, there wasn't really uh, that much personal interaction other than through, through email. So, you know. But she got you a fellowship. I would assume that's not a trivial get. She seemed to have substantial hopes and dreams for your career. And, that's right, and I document that. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah and she so did, and I, was, and I frustrated those. Yeah, you, I agree. You, yeah, you, you frustrated those, and so I would imagine that she experienced you as as betraying her faith in yeah. you. Yeah, yes, I believe that, and I and I, I think I, and I use and I use those. Uh, very words and you know is that true or is that not true well that, that's where it's, it's, it's subjective you know, of course from from her perspective i could understand why she would experience yeah. it as betrayal yeah. but or betrayal is a subjective feeling that other people aren't doing as you expected yeah it's just a hyperbolic yeah. expression do you think she learned anything like do you think she has she changed as, as a result of the great disappointment with ronnie goldman you know i I, I really 
hesitate to speculate about something where you know i don't even have a a modicum of circumstantial evidence but with with that caveat you, you know again i felt that there was uh, a strong connection at certainly you know at, at at the beginning it wasn't and it wasn't just that you know she thought well of me but i felt that you know she also had a sense of the potential for uh my my my, my project that maybe she understood certain of its layers or felt certain of its layers even better than i i had so certainly given that i had that connection uh initially i would like to think that she you know revolved in a certain way as a part of the, of, of the experience but it, it was not an experience of the same you know even if you you accept if you if you, if you accept what my claims as 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 true that certainly the experience was more consequential for, for my antagonists than they would uh acknowledge or would be the case if my underlying claims were false but even assuming the truth of everything you know i don't think that the whole thing would have as pronounced an effect on them as it had on me because you know they're at the end of the day notwithstanding you know frustrations of, of all kinds you know they are and were settled in life in a you know a pretty pretty nice position so you know any kind of conflict or you know frustration or disappointment i, I don't think it's going to affect them as much as it has me who was and still you know does operate from from a, 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 an inferior power position so do, do you think it's possible that she might go weeks without thinking about the ronnie goldman experience um yeah yeah I, I i think i think i think it's possible uh i don't think she would go years without thinking no. of it no but, but uh, weeks yeah yeah she could go weeks without thinking about it yeah it would surprise me so one one critique which you, you do answer in your book but i just want to articulate it is that uh, every group has a code and every group has a language and you simply refuse to abide by the code and the language of this group and so to succeed with with any group you need to abide by codes and certain forms of language so if you had phrased your scholarship and this is from your book in, yeah. in these terms professor x has recently introduced a fascinating new framework through right. which to address problem a in an effort to replace the approach that has been most famously defended by professor y arguing that this not only provides fresh multidisciplinary insight into problem a but also sheds yeah. a new and intriguing light on problem b which professor z first brought to our attention in his rigorously argued and thoroughly researched book c but professor z's book c in fact anticipated ed raised serious reservations about the approach now being defended by Professor X in response to Professor I. Why? This article argues that while Professor Z's reservations have substantial merit, the force of those concerns is attenuated to the extent that we plausibly interpret Professor X as supplementing rather than supplanting the analysis of Professor Y. Thus conceived, the questions introduced by Professor X promise not only to enrich our understanding of problem A, but also to open up new avenues of interdisciplinary yeah. research into problem B that build on those painstakingly 
developed by Professor Z because problem B, properly understood, is just another facet of problem A. So why didn't you do this? It, it would have been inauthentic. You know, you know, now people who are differently constituted might sort of recognize, understand what I'm saying, but say, hey, come on, you know, grow up. The world is the world. Uh, things are imperfect. Institutions are imperfect, but we've got to uh, adapt, you know, move on your career. That is that is the proper attitude of the uh, of the elite, you know, but I'm just not that kind of of, of person as I as I acknowledge. I had a, a certain impulse, which was uh, growing in me on uh, I, I felt in different ways on different levels for uh, for quite some time, which is why I related what happened at Stanford to my uh, earlier days uh, at Indiana in the PhD program there. There's certain, you know, adversarial attitude, which I, I recognize had always been there. So, you know, it is what it is. What can you, what can you say? And uh, normally that kind of recalcitrance is, is going to get you into trouble but you know i i had and and have the hubris that uh you know notwithstanding that i can somehow prevail and the the memoir and its publication is my attempt to to do so you know what, what will happen is uh, is anybody's guess as i stated but why didn't you engage with previous perspectives on conservative victimology simply using the template that you describe and, and then simply take it in 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 the directions you want to go but but essentially following the template and I'll give you an example from my own life so two days before mm -hmm. I was due to graduate from my Alexander Technique training school my teachers were alerted to a blog post I'd made where I criticized one particular approach to the Alexander Technique and I used a kind of uh, dismissive, uh, careless language that, that they took great offense to. And this blog post essentially ended my wider career in the Alexander Technique community. Mm -hmm. I will never be able to join AMSAT, the American Society of Alexander Technique Teachers. Right. From that one blog post, I fell out ineluctably with all of my professors. There was just no going back. And from that experience, I went home and I rephrased that blog post so that it, it didn't cause offense. Now, I'd already done permanent damage, but if I'd simply taken the care to phrase things in a way that uh, would be less likely to give offense, I could have still communicated all the ideas that I wanted to communicate. Uh -huh. So why didn't you subordinate yourself to this form and still then use the form to to travel in the directions you want to travel to so that that comparison suggests that these sort of subtle academic uh norms which i describe as the rationalization of intellectual life is comparable to a certain kind of of tact of of social finesse which you know might be more or less appealing to different people, but which everybody can can adapt to and probably should uh, quite a bit of, of of the time. But I guess I would reject the underlying comparison because I think that these norms, which masquerade as a kind of intellectual seriousness and being, uh, you know, professional and knowledgeable and attuned to the field. I think it's a greater sacrifice than the one you described in your your you know your, your your post hoc yeah. uh, revision. I think I think it's it's kind of it's kind of it's it's a um, stifling form of asceticism which is uh, opposed on, imposed on you. So you know 
I have no problem making trivial sacrifices. I'm I, I've I've no impulse to reject social norms as such. So even though I, I did certainly describe a certain recalcitrance in my uh, in in my in in my youth, you know, I'm happy to conform where I where I can, where the the sacrifice is is, is tolerable. But uh, I, I I don't think it is when it comes to our overall paradigm of of of, of the life of mind. And I, I think one thing you know throughout the my various quotes from uh, Bordeaux and Emerson Emerson and uh, Pollyani, you know, it's it's all there to show that this this paragraph that you have described, it is really underpinned by a, a certain way of looking at the mind and looking at the world. And so, you know, accordingly, uh, the sacrifice would have been too substantial to bear. Now, have there been conservative works of victimology that you could have done, done commentary on? Well, you know, as as I, I I say, you know, no one no one thinks in a vacuum, and I'm, I'm certainly not saying that yeah you know the the right approach is just to you know think for yourself by just ignoring everybody else and and, and you know come up with your own views. I think that's that's quite simplistic. You know, inevitably we need to be stimulated by by the by the outer outer world and you know if you were to look not only in the memoir but also at conservative claims of cultural oppression you will see that it's you know it cites other thinkers quite a bit and some of what they said have been quite crucial to my own formulations so i'm certainly in favor of a certain kind of of, of interaction with the the your broader uh, intellectual milieu and and intellectual cu- culture, but what is the the form of that interaction? And the form of my interaction with it was was utterly chaotic, in the sense that you know, well, I'm reading I'm reading this, and oh yeah, he's saying something that could be useful and may help me articulate what I say. I read it, I take some notes, I move on, I I, I look at something else, same thing. So that's not how it's usually done. Usually you have a, you have a field and you have you can you can list the clear problems and you know what people have made important contributions to addressing these various problems. And so that's how it normally goes. Normally it's quite structured and there you know, not that there's no room for individual thought or individual creativity at all, but as I said there's a certain sublimated asceticism so it really is quite quite regimented and I temperamentally went in the opposite uh, direction, which created a, a lot of chaos, both on paper and, as I describe in the memoir, in the world itself. But at the end of the day, is it all, is it all redeemed somehow? Well, it certainly wasn't you know, redeemed in an academic career. That's, that's clear, and it, it could, could not have been, despite my early hopes, but Will it now be redeemed through this, the dissemination of this memoir 
and whatever else that leads to, um, you know, we will see, as I said. Now, my question was, are there major works on conservative cultural oppression that you could build build on? And, I mean, Jenna Goldberg, for all these talents, uh, liberal fascism is not a major work. It's Yeah. And, and Victor Davis Hanson's columns you know, for National Review right. are not major works. So are there major scholarly yeah. works on conservative victimology that well i would say the, the 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 single the single book uh that has most influenced the theory of conservative claims of cultural oppression is actually not necessarily by a conservative not that i would call him a, a leftist either but i don't know if you're familiar with uh charles taylor mm-hmm. uh famous canadian philosopher yeah. and uh his book is a secular age has been really instrumental, uh, not as itself an articulation of conservative claims of cultural oppression, uh, but as a as a framework through which to understand them. Because he is writing from a uh, a non uh, nonpartisan, non ideological perspective to argue that this this sort of left liberal way of understanding modernity and enlightenment and progress. As as fundamentally the, the the subtraction of these old limitations and prejudices and mores is fundamentally mistaken because if you want to understand the drives of modernity you have to understand how they originated out of certain religious impulses and other social impulses that uh, later adopted a secular sheen and lost their religious rationalizations, but are ultimately spiritual in in some meaningful sense. And once you see that, you can understand conservatives as resisting that whole uh, tendency. And you understand, and so I think they have this, I think conservatives have an intuitive, whether they can articulated theoretically or not, I think a lot of them have a very intuitive sense that there's something wrong with this liberal enlightenment uh, paradigm. And that's a, that's a visceral sense where they can't articulate well, and before which liberals are necessarily in, in, you know, incredulous because they have this, this, this enlightenment view. But what I try to do is to get people to take conservative claims of cultural oppression seriously, I can say, okay, Jonah Goldberg, uh, Victor Davis Hanson, and, you know, all these other conservative claimants of cultural oppression, you have this impulse just to dismiss them. But what happens when I, I start taking what they say, things which you would dismiss as ridiculous, but I begin to explain their significance within this theory that that derives from Charles Taylor and a secular age, at that time, you will see that these these things which you are prone to dismiss have a deeper layer of of meaning. So, you know, if I just stick to conservatives, you know, I'm, I'm not going to persuade liberal academics. But if I show that even these figures of which are normally contemptible, harbor a deeper layer of meaning, which is articulated through this theory, that carries some value. 
Now, I love it that uh, Professor Joe Bankman, I, I believe he was all in support of your project on co claims of conservative oppression, so yeah. long as you only meant it ironically. I That's my sense. He did not put it in those right. terms, so there's some some interpretation there, but, you know, but I certainly gave some indications that that was my view, and it's the only that that explains why he could be so enthusiastic while at the same time evidencing this contempt for conservatism, you know, there's no, there's no other way to square that circle. And that was, that was my view uh, to a certain extent as, 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 as well. And that, you know, that irony, you know, probably continues, uh, continues, continues as, as well on, on, on some level, just this, uh, this kind of perverse impish uh, contrarianism. Yeah, I, I live in Los Angeles, and so when I get outside of Orthodox Judaism, most people are on the left, and I, I'm very much on the right. And for me to have harmonious social relations with people, particularly in a workplace, I have to have an attitude of ironic detachment and finding everything funny because people, yeah. normies, find it unfathomable that I'd support Donald Trump. But as long right. as I, I essentially frame it in terms of it's funny, then then they're able to to deal with it yeah and i've noticed um, a lot of other people kind of walking that same dance that they're at a dinner party where everyone's trashing trump and they kind of join in but they do it you know ironically right well you know you, you have the, the the left and right they kind of they intermesh in you know strange strange uh ways these days you know you have you have a lot of you have youtubers who are kind of they they present themselves as 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 liberals, but you know liberals who are honest enough to recognize the truth and what conservatives are are saying. So yeah, I mean, I've 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 had I've had this this impish desire to maybe throw people off a bit, you know, as to where I stand. And and you know, part of that is impishness. Part of that is maybe maybe I'm not just completely certain where I stand either. Yeah. And uh, who is, I, I believe, Larry Kramer? What what role does he play in your story? Well, you know, he doesn't have he doesn't have. Uh, you know, even though I, I believe he was involved in the in, in the gaslighting, he doesn't play a huge role. He was a, uh, um, along with Joe Bankman, he was one of the two instructors in the uh, the legal theory class. You know, he thought well of me. He was, uh, you know, he he backed he backed the fellowship. And, uh, and 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 so forth as, as I described, but he wasn't you know as involved as uh, as uh, Joe and Barbara during the uh, the workshop. It was actually Joe who was my mentor and actually read you know most uh, most of my work. Uh, he's not in academia anymore. You know, last I yeah he he, he left I think a few years after I left. I think he became the uh, the chair president of the uh, the Hewlett Foundation, yes. the charitable foundation. Yes. So. You know, I'm sure I'm sure he's doing something important uh, right now, whatever whatever it is. Um, but um, you know, he's one more he's one more uh, data point. He's not the driver. My my sense is that it was probably Joe and Barbara who formed the the diagnosis of what was going on, whatever that was exactly. And I I, I would imagine that Larry, because he knew that they knew me better, probably just uh, defer deferred to their understanding of things, whatever, whatever that was. And I, I believe in your story, the first law professor who had 
an intense negative visceral reaction towards you was uh, Bob Weisberg. So talk to me about him and why he, you think he developed this like visceral reaction against you. Oh, but that was, you know, I don't, I don't think he had prior to that. I had no problem with him and he had no problem with me. I'm talking about one specific evidence. And that's because, you know, I believe on the basis of all the factors that I lay out in the, the memo that he had been led to believe that I had falsified the works in progress, that I wasn't doing anything. So solely because he had been led to form that belief that he reacted that way, you know, uh, prior to that, there was no issue. It was, it was a response to uh, particular circumstances and a particular way of understanding those circumstances. Yeah, and uh, you point this out in the book, but I've also experienced this in my own life. You can, you can go a long way in life by giving the impression to your social superiors that you're looking up to them and taking cues from them, but right. you know, eventually they find out that you've been taking them for a ride and they react really yeah. badly. Yeah, that is certainly not a wholly uh, inaccurate way of, uh, of 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 describing things, you know. And I guess I, ha I had sort of a uh, uh, ends justified the means a certain uh, ideological uh, zealotry uh, that allowed me to uh, to do that to give off those uh, those false those false cues which I you know I, I fully I fully acknowledge I think I said I would I would deceive them and uh, deceive myself along the way as uh, as necessary uh, precisely to maintain the facade. Uh, you're 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 describing but you know if if you take the left to its logical conclusion then it's quite easy to justify that so yeah they have these these norms and obviously you should be honest with them and straightforward and i would just say well yeah it's easy for you to embrace those norms given that you're embracing them from the superior power position i in an inferior power, power position to achieve what i want have no choice but to flout them in some manner or another. And so once again, there you see how I am, uh, I'm taking the logic of the left and uh, inverting them against an institution which is commonly thought of as left. I, I remember I was writing a book on Hollywood movie producers and I, I started making some critical comments about Bob Ovitz, I think, who was you know, a very powerful person in Hollywood at the time. And, and I remember these like various producers were just like, I rate that I would, that I, you know, a complete outsider would dare to say negative things about Ovitz because I, I just, mm -hmm. I wasn't following the code. I mean, I got this a lot in my, in my blogging and uh, writing life. Right. People kept telling me, you're not following the code. You're breaking the code, bro. Right. And it seems like you experienced something similar. Yeah. You know, um, so yeah, I mean, maybe, maybe my, uh, my book will incur uh, the kind of, uh, uh, righteous contempt that you're, uh, you're describing. I don't know. They're, I don't know, you know, their heart of hearts, you know, if it, if it did, uh, they certainly wouldn't acknowledge it because in academia, you know, the ultimate insult is, um, just, you know, I, I will, I will, uh, uh, it's just to ignore somebody. It's like, I'm not going to say anything negative about you uh, because you're too unimportant even for that. So that that being the ultimate insult in academia, um, I, my expectation is, you know, 
a whole lot of silence, uh, regardless of what they're actually thinking. If if they're thinking anything, you know, again, I don't want to be presumptuous. It's it's possible that they won't care at all. But you are correct that when you are uh, disturbing a uh, an established power hierarchy, it's uh, it's certainly not unreasonable to expect that kind of blowback. Yeah, I've had a lot of teachers, professors, uh, and mentors say I've never had anyone challenge me as much as you do. But the the, the people that my that my professors would end up you know, sponsoring and easing into really good jobs were never the people who were challenging them. It was always the people who didn't create waves for them and were just essentially adoring. Yeah, sure. Well, I, you know, I do, I do think that uh, academia sort of selects for a certain kind of uh, obsequiousness. Now I'm not, I'm not saying there's no meritocracy either. There, there, there is, I mean, you certainly have to, you know, as I, as I say at various points, you know, what do you need? You need, succeed in academia uh identify four things so you certainly need some some brains you need some hard work you need luck and you need that obsequiousness we're discussing those are the four things you really need all four yeah i when i was at ucla i was quite friendly with a a professor of musicology who's now dead but one of his one of his hobbies was you know setting up elite ucla athletes with sex works with sex work with you know uh gay gay people in, in hollywood but you know no one ever wanted oh. to talk about that <laughs> like there are all these you know all these you know fulsome tributes to this guy who was you know qu quite a successful pimp but, mm -hmm. but, you know, no one wants to talk about that. It's just, oh, you know, right. great musicologist. Right. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's a, uh, there's certainly a shady, uh, a shady underside to every institution, you know, though, you know, in my case, the, 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 the shady underside is ultimately these, these, you know, cultural, cultural pathologies. So, you know, there's only, there's only so much they can say against me, given that, you know, ostensibly, I'm just, continuing the project I, that I began under their auspices, you know, and that, that's something I try to highlight that, you know, at, at, at the end of the day, even though you may see all this as a betrayal, uh, I, I do not precisely because the memoir and, and everything that has happened, uh, I see as a logical outgrowth of what the project uh, was. So I, I, I think, you know, and I give them credit for for discerning the potential from the outset. So I don't think, you know, uh, I, I, obviously I I was not going to take their their uh, advice when it came to a lot of things with respect to anything that would derail me from my my project. But I I think they were nevertheless instrumental. First of all, just identifying the potential of 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 the project and. Um, Barbara in uh, discerning certain structural tendencies which would uh, unfold over the uh, fellowship. And uh, lastly, also the gaslighting it's itself, uh, whose philosophical meaning I seek to, uh, to unearth. So, you know, I'm trying to uh, promote a, uh, a nuanced uh, view where I, uh, I, re I rejected certain aspects of, uh, of what they uh, had to offer, but I, I don't think they were inconsequential either. Yeah, it took me about 15 years to 
finish my conversion to Orthodox Judaism because I kept getting kicked out because I I blog about you know powerful rabbis who you know were sexually abusing people. I, well, I, I just read that on your uh, your article. <laughs> I think posted just uh, yesterday or very recently, right? Yeah, that didn't endear me, and so after like one 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 blog post where where I wrote about this very you know, influential, powerful rabbi in town who would, you know, yeah. insist that the, the, the women who, that, or this one particular woman I knew, that she 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 must urinate on him, and he was her, her, her sponsoring rabbi, and so my sponsoring rabbi, like you know, biked over to my home, like was so concerned about my well being, and said, "Sometimes you have to think strategically," and yeah. I think you got a lot of the same advice, like to annoy me, like it's inconceivable that you're not thinking strategically here. I, I mean, most people can't conceive of that because most people I know who are my peers who are successful are careerists. You know, they essentially right. put career success above every other value. And, they project their own vices yeah. onto onto you. Yeah. And, and you, know. you, you did not choose to put career success above every other value. Right. Well, you know, I, I, I look at these uh, you know responses to my, my Facebook ads, and I, I don't know if people are responding just to the ads themselves or – if they've gone on to the uh, website, you know, I got this, uh, you know, uh, what was it? Uh, very vulgar response. It was like, um, way to toot your own horn. Uh, oh, wait, horn comes out of your mouth and not your ass. You know, something very vulgar like that. And yeah, I mean, they're thinking, obviously. Is that from you know, Barbara? Yeah. What's that? Was that from Barbara? No, no, this, this is just I, a I'm random joking, person I'm on joking. Facebook. Yeah. Yeah, maybe, maybe Barbara would think the same thing. I don't know. But this was just from a random person on Facebook. And, um, yeah, it's like real, if if my goal was some sort of, uh, you know, vapid uh, self-flattery, self-aggrandizement, would I have spent, like, years of my life in this, you know, ascetic state of putting all these books together, uh, there would certainly be – a, an easier way to toot your own horn if that's what you're trying to do, ultimately. Right. The um, only reason that you talk about your experience and the only reason that you expect anyone else to have any interest in your experience and your resentments is purely as part of a, a structural um, laying out of a thesis of conservative victimology. Right. It, it has absolutely nothing to do with you and your experience, except to the extent that it is one one layer in this larger thesis on conservative victimology. You're not important. You are laying out reactions to you that are only important, not because they have anything to do with you, but only right. to the extent that they reveal larger issues. That's, that's sort of the thing. That's something I say... Uh... You know, uh, I think at a number of points, certainly in the uh, in the memorandum of law, this is not really about me. I, I, I mean, it's about me insofar as I'm interacting with these other forces. And likewise, for other people, it's not them except insofar as they're interacting with other other forces. Yeah. So there is uh, certainly a, a lot of people uh, yeah, fail to appreciate the uh, kind of the idealistic uh Elements. So I, I found it strange that even among like some reviewers who, who you know did appreciate the idealistic uh, aspirations, you know they, they still wrote about the book in a manner which I thought was a little bit too serious because you know there's also I would hope and, and you know you said the book was was hilarious. I've yes, seen I, I, I was it. just I was there's laughing the whole time too. through. Yeah, I'm just having fun making fun of yeah. 
human beings, myself and others as as, as well. And, and so I, I, I don't think that that I am as serious a person as some people seem to be gathering from the book, even even favorable reviewers. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I, like someone just sent me an email right before the show that's like, oh, I don't want to read his, his memoir. I'm going to get depressed. So someone on the right, and I read back, it, it's not the least depressing. It's just the, the most hilarious book I've read, I've read this year. I mean, I was just like doubled up in laughter all, all the way through. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm, 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 a lot of it, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm trying to entertain. Yeah. Uh, the whole thing was no spam, it was like this trivial anecdote. Yeah. I was just trying to entertain readers. That's yeah. that's all. That I think she understood. Um, so that's that. You know, that is that is you know part of uh, of of it. Saying, listen, you've got these these weird different people, and they're in this situation, and look what happened. You know, isn't it kind of is it a comedy of errors? I guess it kind of is, but with a with a philosophical upshot. So that's that's something I want to like. Can we, yeah, I, no matter what I do, and that's why you know I'm I'm very you know grateful for what you you've done because you know if i just go out there i, I put out the, the the blurb on the back back cover i can put some of the reviews on nice reviews i've gotten i can put the frequently asked questions on the website but it's just it's so easy for uh people to get the completely wrong idea about the book yeah and if people are curious i've reached out to every single person who's mentioned in this book i've sent off 30 plus emails to every character in this book, inviting their, their comment on the book. I've frequently taken the time to excerpt from the book where what you've written, written about other people. So uh, one person who's responded is, is Joshua Cohen. So he's yeah, I a saw that. political science professor and a philosopher, and he also teaches in, in the law school. What, what role did uh, Joshua Cohen play in your story? He, uh, he, he didn't play a a huge role, you know, in, 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 in a sense, you know, to the extent I, I, I use him, it's simply just to illustrate how my own, uh, I think he, he, he noted that I was perhaps, you know, thoughtful, but ponderous, uh, not an unfair characterization necessarily. And I use him to show how I sort of my, my own ponderousness, uh, which was on another level, what just meant was commit, commitment to the, the, the project, uh, led to a conflict so i sort of use him as a as a foil because you know he's he's you know clean cut academic you know studied with john rawls uh renowned theorist of liberalism so i kind of yeah i i play with him a little bit i use him as a a foil but um his his uh i i his characterizations as far as they go are not uh are not inaccurate as i stated in my in my response uh I don't think that he was uh, necessarily involved that much in the gaslighting, though I strongly suspect that he was at the very least uh, aware of it. Of course, that's something he's he's necessarily going to deny. But uh, but anyway, I don't I don't think he was deeply involved in it. But he's just you know part of a cast a uh, floating cast of characters that I came in into uh, interactions with, and I tried to you know learn what I could. Uh, philosophically from each one as best I could. Yeah, and I mean, Josh seems to be a, a sterling exemplar of how to operate in academia. Right? Yeah, he, yeah. he got a mentor. He plays by the rules of the game. Like he, like he's, he, he shows how to succeed in academia. 
for right? sure. Is that fair? I think for sure. I, I mean, you know, I mean, anyone who becomes a professor at Stanford, you know, presumably, you know, would would know that, you know, unless you had some sort of, you know, 17 year old, you know, math prodigy, you know, genius who was solving all these old problems for the first time, you know, such a person, you know, who was, you know, so obviously and indisputably brilliant. Well, you know, I guess, I guess Einstein was supposed to be, you know, quirky as, as well from what, what I vaguely know. Such a person who's so, who's, you know, self-evidently brilliant from the start, maybe they could make their way to, into academia while, you know, forgetting all about the game, you know, but that's, that's very few people, even at the, the most elite institutions. So for everyone short of, short of that, you have to play the game. Now there's, there are a bunch of great anecdotes in, in, in the book about a conservative scholar who starts off with tremendous enthusiasm for your work, and then the enthusiasm very quickly goes limp. And oh, McConnell! Would, Michael McConnell. That's Michael that's McConnell, a yeah. wonderful. T tell us tell us more about Michael McConnell. Look, I never, I never, I never, I never met him personally, though yeah. I tried as I, I was in there. So. What's that? I know you tried to meet with him. But I tried. I, such I, a dramatic. He wasn't there. Yeah. And he didn't tell me he wouldn't be there. So I don't know. But, well, you know, <laughs> that, that's, all, that's all fun and games. But, no, uh, oh, he was, um, uh, he had just started the, the year when everything went down. That was his first year at Stanford. He was formerly uh, a federal appellate judge. And I guess he needed a uh, a career break. So he moved into academia. I, I think he probably ha already had some involvement in academia, even as a, as a judge. And, um, you know, he, you know, after after my fellowship wasn't renewed, I had to apply to other ones. One of them was the Federalist Society, which is a right of right of center organization. He was kind of a big shot there. He apparently dispensed, at least had some significant role in dispensing their fellowships. And I, I, I kind of suspected that you know, he would appreciate the uh, the paper because even though you know the paper that I gave to Barbara in September was kind of crappy. Uh, you know, by the time I applied to the Federal Society, it was, it was in much better shape. So I thought I thought he would appreciate it, which he which he did. And we went back and forth, and I did everything I could to finally arrange a time to meet him, but it never worked out, even though I tried on multiple occasions. And you know, my 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 explanation for it is that you know he was uh, apprised of the uh, the surreptitious conflict, the surreptitious gas gaslighting by another professor, and that's what explains the the discrepancy so that is you know I, ma I make the argument that that is more likely than mere chance and randomness that our correspondences became what they did and uh readers will evaluate uh, for themselves whether I, i've made that argument now you repeatedly describe gaslighting in your book but you also make it appear that it, it had virtually zero gaslighting effect on you at, at the time. Now, uh, is that you now reading back in and, and understanding more clearly what was happening? Or at the time, were you yeah. experiencing ill effects from the gaslighting? Or at the time, did you see right through the gaslighting? Well, so, you know, it's, I, I think it's a matter, it's a matter of, of degrees, you know, somewhere uh, in between the two oscillating, uh, between the two, you know, at at the end of the the day, 
in my heart of hearts, did I believe that my inferences were fundamentally, you know, correct? I would say, you know, yes. But when it came to social interactions and communicating it to anybody, they're sort of, you know, the social self takes over and the social norms take over and, you know, somebody thinks you're crazy. So you kind of begin to half believing it as well. So it's a matter of degrees that uh, depends on, 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 on context. But I, I recognize the tension you're highlighting it because on the one hand, I'm describing it as gaslighting, thus suggested that I was somehow, you know, manipulated, uh, the, the, you know, th that somehow I had been fooled into doubting my own sanity. But on the, on the other hand, I give indications that I know that I have not been fooled, that I know what's exact, you know, exactly what's going on. So there's a certain, there's a certain, you know, tension there. But I think that that might be inherent to gaslighting. I'm not sure. Well, uh, I would, I would argue that if you are in touch with yourself and and have a realistic understanding of yourself, that you can't really be gaslit. Gaslighting depends upon you being open to delusional thinking. So for example, if I have an exaggerated sense of my own importance, I'm much more vulnerable to being gaslit. Like, to people right. telling me, oh, if only you did this with your show, you'd have 500 times more viewers. All right, if if I'm not in touch with with reality, I'd be much more, uh, you know, bending and twisting and turning to try to accommodate these various suggestions. Mm -hmm. While if I have an accurate understanding that I'm doing a high IQ show, for which there's going to be a you know, very narrow audience, right? Then I'm not going to be gaslit. So, so one's susceptibility to gaslighting right. is is primarily determined by one's own ability to live in reality. That's my thesis. What do you think? Yeah, I I, I certainly accept that dis that distinction. And you know, maybe it would have been more technically correct for me to, you know, to speak of, of my my attempted gaslighting rather than my my gaslighting. That's just, you know, it's extra words and, and extra yeah. extra syllables that maybe I didn't want in there. But I would also say that even though you know the, the, the distinction you've highlighted is basically valid, I think people these days, given the the you know how prominent the term has become, people will also use gaslighting in sort of the looser sense of attempted gaslighting. So, you know, I might say, are you, are you gaslighting me? If I were to say something like that, yeah. I'm accusing you of gaslighting, but I'm also uh, evincing my awareness of what's going on. So yeah, it's not, it's not a strict usage of, of, of the term. And it, it you know, it created some ambiguity and some, some questions, but you know, those, those questions are, are worth exploring. And again, from a, from a, a you know, literary point of view, I just wanted to speak of, of, of gaslighting. And I felt that I, need, I needed to use that, that term because the you know, it's been used so so loosely uh, to uh, address you know any any kind of intellectual disingenuity, my experience as I write in the frequently asked questions actually bears some kind of resemblance to gaslighting as it was in the original movies, albeit much more intellectualized as I as I as I explained. So I did feel it was important to use that term to help communicate my my meaning, though I, I agree that I use it in an imprecise sense. 
So I, I'm going to give you another analogy from my experience, which I'm wondering out loud if it also somewhat fits your experience. So when, when I started live streaming, I would always get an audience over 100, like you would go from 100, 200, 300, 500, 900, right? And then mm -hmm. when I, I changed my live streaming primarily to an academic approach to the world around me, my my audience went down to about 5% of what it right. once was. So when I yeah. would routinely stream over 100 live viewers, I would think to myself and take pleasure when other people would point out how superior my live streams were to other people who had fewer viewers. And right. I would like I would pump myself up like, you know, I'm so much more significant than these other losers who, who only have five, 15, 20 viewers. Now mm -hmm. the tables have turned like all these other people now have hundreds of live viewers and I sometimes have five, 10 live viewers. But now I I think this is called the transvaluation of values or something like that. Now I, I understand that as just showing how truly superior my live streams are, right. how truly elite they are, that they only appeal to an elite audience. So where, wherever I am in, in live streaming, whether it's to a big audience or a small audience, I immediately yeah. seize on an explanation where I'm totally awesome. Now, in your right. journey, you had two professors in particular who championed you, a married couple, Barbara Freed and Joe Bankman, and they essentially arranged, particularly Barbara arranged this, this fellowship for you. So I would assume that would be a tremendous source of energy and self-esteem. And then you fell out pretty, you know, with, with pretty much everyone, which also could be a source of self-esteem because it is it is providing value and substance for your argument about conservative cultural oppression. So when they were championing you, that was proof of your value. And when they were gaslighting you, that was also proof of your value. Is, is that fair? Yes, I, I think I think that's right. Well, but, you know, people uh, seek proof of their value where they can find it, uh, I, 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 I suppose, but but certainly... Um, even if I did ultimately see the gaslighting as proof of my value, it wasn't something that I could readily in, 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 enjoy because it only affirms my value to the extent that I can ultimately prevail over it. And that has been uh, very much an open question for many years. Now, hopefully that open question uh, will now be resolved through... Uh, through the the memoir, but yeah, I, I kind of see myself as you know the uh, prophet, you know, forced out into the the wilderness, sort of a thing. Like, yeah, you are no longer amidst the you know the, the grandeur of the pharaohs or something. You're in this barren uh, desert, but in in reality, there is a uh, a higher meaning, a higher value in this ostensible nothingness. So uh, I, I've certainly been compelled to, to think that way, but it's, a, it's not, it's, 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 it's hard, you know? Whereas if you just have these professors telling you you're great, that's, that's easy. Are Jewish professors more likely to advance the interests of Jewish students than of non-Jewish students? I... Um, I've not investigated it to the point where um, I could, you know, give you a sound answer. From 
my my intuition from you know my experience is is no um i i think they whether jewish or not if, you know professors at stanford they have a certain uh conception of academic uh merit um so i think i think normally they're just going to apply it uh strictly uh in 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 my particular case you know i think i think there was something more involved than just you know a recognition of general merit because i think they they saw there was something in the in something something special in the project and uh maybe you can you know ultimately ultimately link that to a certain jewish you know iconoclasm or uh, rebelliousness maybe but that's 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 speculative as to my case and as a as a general matter i i, I think most academics just apply i mean there's a lot of arbitrariness you know in terms of who you know and things like that but i think it's uh it, 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 and certainly people relate to others depending on what they have in common but uh you know to the extent that has that has influence i think most of the time that's just one small piece of a much more complicated puzzle but i mean implicitly your book could certainly be read as promoting the thesis that I just described, particularly your detailed description of, of habitus about how we feel comfortable with people for reasons we can't articulate and how we yeah. fall out with, with people for reasons yeah. we can't articulate. It's yeah. it's entirely pre-rational. Yeah. And so is, is that fair? Could one not read your book and and come away with with an understanding that it would make sense that in in certain circumstances Jewish professors would feel more comfortable with Jewish students and would feel on the same page more with Jewish students and therefore would be more likely to promote them. I I I just don't think that you know among I mean all of these people are 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 fairly secular whatever their ethnic origins or religious roots i just i just feel like um that's just what, what, to whatever extent that's playing that's playing a a role I, I think there are so many you know so many other factors as uh as well i, I just think that you know it's, a, it's an empirical question my intuition tells me it's not a huge factor i i i, I might be wrong you know it, it might be different in other sectors of society or maybe ethnic affinities play a bigger a bigger a bigger role that's that's my that's my hunch i'm not sure let's say i found th there have been academic surveys that found jewish scientists were more likely to quote jewish scientists in their papers but i don't think you'd be surprised if jewish professors were say 10 percent more likely to promote uh jewish students than non-jewish students if if there was like some kind of empirical survey, I, d I don't think you'd be shocked by that. No, I wouldn't be shocked. I, it, it, it's it's not. Uh, people are people are people. People have biases, but but I but if it was much higher than ten percent, uh, I might become a little skeptical. Uh, do you think it's weird or even unhealthy or dangerous that? Uh, in a nation where Jews are about 1.5% of the population, I assume that they're close to 50% of the elite law professors. Um, 
You know, I think I think uh, dangerous in, in in what sense that they will that they will yield a uh, pernicious cultural influence. Well, I, I live in Orthodox Judaism, where people feel very nervous whenever a Jew is running for any prominent public office. They, yeah. they just think that this will redound against us. And, you know, Jews should just do their jobs and study Torah. And so many Jews in, in the traditional Orthodox circles I circulate in are not thrilled, particularly because almost all secular you know, almost all elite law professors are going to be left wing. And, right. and most, you know, Orthodox Jews I know just find their views absolutely heinous. But I have no idea in what sense it could be dangerous. But I just know in human history that tends to that tends to be disruptive. All right. There are no examples of a society that has reached a where Jews have reached five percent of the population where it has not caused major, major dislocation because you then have a nation within a nation. And and so to, I could understand, you know, dangerous in many different directions if if a, a profession becomes colonized by another nation from, from within, that could explode in many different ways. Okay, well, I wonder, like, the nation within a nation now, if you were to go to, to, uh, to Israel, I mean, there's an argument to be made that the, Orthodox Jews, specifically the you know the, the Hasidic Jews of Israel, really are a nation within a nation of secular Jews because they you know they have their own social expectations, they make their own demands, they don't want to be in the army, they want to be able to enforce their mores in their neighborhoods, uh, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So if you, if I look at that, you know where they're not just they don't just have different beliefs. Uh, or ethnicity, but a, a fundamentally different lifestyle. So there, I see that nation within a nation uh, tension. But when it comes to um, you know, I mean, if you go whatever whatever you know proportion of Jews there may be in these elite academic circles, their you know worldview it's a secular worldview, which I don't think defers that much from that of you know. Christian colleagues or, you know, Christian originated uh, colleagues. Um, so, I, you know, I, I, I think that when, when people have this critique of Jewish influence, a lot of what they're really critiquing is, you know, modernity itself. And you can, you can, you know, tie... Judaism to Christianity, and then Christianity ultimately secularized into modernity. So there's there's uh, this very philosophically rarefied way in which you can say sort of you know this Jews are sort of responsible for it for it all or wield this disproportionate influence. But on the the micro level m among secular secular elites, your uh, you know they, they, there was some program we're going to hire fifty percent fewer. Jews and replace them with the next batch of non-Jews that we would that you know are are almost disqualified or whatever. I don't know that the mores of uh, academia would would shift all that much. Yeah, that that's a, a great point. On the, on the other hand, I look at say the the scholarship of a Leo Strauss, 
and his enormous corpus of work can essentially be boiled down to how do we create societies that are safe spaces for Jews? He's, you know, he promotes religion because he thinks, you know, religion will be good for the Jews, that America mm-hmm. will be a safer place for Jews if people are religious. He promotes the, the doctrine that if you're going to talk about dangerous things like atheism, that you've got to do it in coded language so that, you know, regular people don't find out. Right. Uh, so the, the, like the enlightened, the enlightenment lives among you know secular Jewish intellectuals. Like the the enlightenment is is dominant, and it you can explain their work. Generally speaking, it does fall in the direction of creating a safe, hospitable place for Jews. That there there are unifying themes to the, the legal scholarship on an elite level of uh, Jewish Americans. Okay. And, and very well, different from black Americans who, who promote much, who have often promoted a much more uh, separatist agenda. That, yeah, that's, that's, that, that's right. I mean, I, I agree. I, I think, yeah, there's probably been a, a lot of, uh, of Jews, even, you know, prior to, to Strauss in the uh, 19th century said, so we have these, 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 you know, enlightenment changes. We'll, we'll make the world, uh, more hospitable to uh, to Jews, and I mean certainly. Then, if you if that's the case, and you don't uh, you don't like modernity, and you see that you have all these Jews uh, spearheading it, then you know you will. Uh, yeah, you might you might be uh, generate some anti-Semitic uh, inclinations, but I don't think that you know ultimately you can say that Jews are the ones who are causing all of these uh, tendencies that are, that are disliked by the right, except again, in the most rarefied sense that Jews have had this important place in in history by virtue of engendering monotheism and the entire historical process that emanated from that. But if you just look at people today, I think we're all kind of, you know, going back to the habitus, we're all sort of, you know, manifestations of 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 greater things and also the the opposition to public displays of christianity i mean that almost unites elite jewish legal scholars they really Mm -hmm. they loathe christianity in the public square i mean and and the erection of of, you know ten commandments or uh, crashes at at city hall i mean that is pretty much universal among elite jewish legal minds well, you know, now, I mean, it's all going to depend on um, the symbolism carried by that. So, uh, you know, if you had uh, uh, a city hall where during the holidays they opened up the lawn for anyone to put anything anything there, you know, um, I, I don't think there's going to be many Jewish legal minds who are going to say that doesn't pass constitutional muster but if all you have is you know you have the, just the cross you are going to say does this, this, this not uh connote uh, a state in endorsement of uh, of christianity so yeah they, they, you're right yeah, they're not they're not they're not gonna like that but i think there's lots of uh uh visceral atheists in this country who are going to have the same hostility jewish or not as well I mean, you see this in the historical profession. Virtually all history books about populism, which are done 
that are critical of populism, that really loathe populism, particularly in the, the, the turn of the century, the fin de siècle, William Jennings Bryant, etc. They're all written by Jews or people from the Northeast, while mm-hmm. Southerners who write history books uh, about populism are either neutral to friendly. So, so the position of the observer is an integral part of the data, and it's just a basic fact of, of Jewish existence that there is this visceral fear of triumph of Christianity. And, and the, um, the masses, there's a visceral Jewish fear of populism and the masses, which is not felt hmm. nearly as much among, among non-Jews. Jews really fear populism. I mean, thinking, intellectual, smart Jews. There is, there's a near universal Jewish loathing of populism. I could see that. I mean, I guess insofar as, insofar as the original monotheistic impulse of Judaism is as anti-apocalypse, right? So you've got the entire Near East, and they're all uh, they're all worshiping idols, and here comes Abraham, and he's going to break one. So there is a you can say there's a certain elitism in that in that very. Uh, Act which can maybe later take on a, a variety of of forms. Does that seem like like uh, a possible explanation to you? That that's more theoretical. It's just historical. Jews have been Jews have never been popular, and Jews have relied on the protection of elites, particularly monarchs and princes. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah. even today, Jews prefer rule by experts to rule by the people. Yeah, as do as do intellectuals generally. That's yeah, true. Um, I mean, I, again, I'm not I'm not disputing that there are certain you know social and cultural tendencies which are going to be more more pronounced in in Jews. I mean, insofar as you have different culture that that these kinds of differences uh, follow. Uh, but so I'm, I'm not dismissing the observations. But I again, just to uh, to reiterate, I, th- I think you know everybody is is to very in various ways a, a product of these historical forces. So I, I don't know again that it makes sense to speak of right essentialism. Of, 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 None of us are arguing for essentialism. There's nothing essential about being right. Jewish that makes you anything. But these historical forces have produced in Jews a visceral fear of populism and a visceral fear of of public triumph of Christianity. Um maybe. I'm not I'm not dismissing the possibility of some some that some version of what you're saying is 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 true, you know, probably once once suitably, you know, qualified in a way that I haven't thought about. You know, I'm certainly it would be if you are going to celebrate diversity and say people are different, then you also have to be willing to make some kind of generalizations as you've been doing so i don't i don't i don't dismiss uh that whether those are uh ultimately the best generalizations um i'm not i'm not sure right okay let me just uh read a few sections from your your book so that people can get get a uh, flavor flavor of it so Rightly or wrongly, conservatives feel perennially under the heel of the liberal jackboot, and I wanted to understand why. And there, I think, is a great 
summary of your scholarship on conservative victimology because this yeah. is so true even when yeah. if, if conservatives like in 2016 they won the senate the house of representatives and the presidency right they right. won all three chambers and yet they entirely felt oppressed and under the heel of the, the liberal jackboot so I, I thought that was just a very succinct uh, observation would yeah. you like to elaborate on that well, you know, also uh, that's that's something that uh, you know Thomas Frank wrote uh, "What's the Matter from uh, with Kansas," and you know he wrote, uh, "It doesn't matter who could who who won the presidency, who won the who won the Senate, um, and uh, who controls the courts. They're always going to feel uh, oppressed." So, what do we make of that of that strange phenomenon? There's two things you can make of it. You can say one, well, then they're self evidently you know irrational, and they're still going to feel oppressed despite. Uh, gaining the reins of, of, of power, but the, the other and more charitable interpretation is that that just means that the reins of power is something subtler than it can be captured by, you know, who wins, who wins uh, elections, which is why, you know, conservatives are disposed towards the culture wars and liberals uh, dis dismiss it. These conservatives have kind of a, I, I think, a more comprehensive, uh, expansive sense of what of what power is, whereas uh, liberals will limit it strictly to to you know legal and uh, and economic power, which is uh, and I think that that difference of understanding, the fact that uh, conservatives believe symbolic power, cultural power, is real, whereas uh, liberals are skeptical of that. Explains for you know a lot of why they talk past each other. Now, another way that that I understand your scholarship is essentially you're arguing that everybody benefits from accurate criticism, including ruling elites, ruling right. systems of thought, and so I, I want to. Uh, just kind of muse and, and think about that for a, for a minute. So YouTube and social media became increasingly restrictive over the past five years. So there are certain protective groups that you're not allowed to make any critical comments about the group. Right. So you're not allowed to make critical comments about Jews, not allowed to make critical comments about blacks, uh, Latinos, homosexuals, transsexuals. There, there are protective groups who are immune from criticism. And... I think that's not good for those groups and it's not good for society. So, for example, we have this monkeypox outbreak currently mm -hmm. and we have all these news articles uh, primarily focusing on the fear of stigmatizing the gay community because this is primarily transmitted among gays. Right. And all these articles saying that we've got these public health problems in the United States. We're not doing enough to get vaccines to people and medical care to people. But there's absolutely no media attention to, say, discouraging people from going to gay orgies. Like, to, to do that would be just completely uh, unthinkable. So I, I'm, I'm thinking just out loud those, those thoughts that every group, as well as individual, benefits from accurate criticism that that Jews benefit from accurate criticism of Jews, that blacks benefit from accurate criticism of blacks. And, and currently you can, you can criticize Christians as a group or you want, that's totally acceptable on social media. You can criticize white people uh, or you want uh, on social media and, and in public discourse, but there are all these protected groups that you can't criticize. 
and no one explicitly says you can't criticize the the liberal worldview and the the liberal reigning ethos it's just taken for granted i guess that it's um it, it's the the path of enlightenment and, and nobody would even would even you know take seriously the the idea of, of criticizing uh our ruling you know elite mindset is there anything there you want to respond to yeah, so I, I would say that you know certainly, um, there's a sense in which you going going to the monkeypox example. Certainly, there is a a sense in which you could urge upon gay people to sort of you know to desist or at least you know be cautious about certain sexual practices because now we've got this new disease which is sort of disseminated that way more easily. And certainly, you could propose that as a you know. A purely just just a fact about the world. It's kind of a a pragmatic measure that you should take for the time being, given the situation. So you could put it in those kinds of uh, of terms. And I think sort of the the sort of the fear among these uh, minority groups that even though there is kind of a uh, always always a well intentioned pragmatic rationale that 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 is going to be always used as uh, cover for more nefarious uh, insinuations, i.e., you know, you are polluting your body, you are sinning against God and being punished as a result. So I, I think there's always this fear that there's sort of these, these, these things that um, uh, criticisms which on their own would not be dubious are going to be used more, more nefarious purposes. And I don't think that's illegitimate, though I would say, on the other hand, it's true that that concern is not applied uh, consistently in every in every context. It, it is, I do agree that certainly among uh, you know conservatives and uh, Christianity, you can sort of more you know self and you can you can criticize with less caution. Um, uh, you don't have to be that careful about uh, clarifying that you are not, you know, criticizing them as people. Or you're only criticizing the the belief. So yeah, there is there is a certain double standard. I'll I'll agree with that. But now, I still think there's mm -hmm. some merit to the mm -hmm. the liberal standard. At least it was applied mm -hmm. more broadly. Now there are also there are thousands of books by elite Jewish intellectuals criticizing non-Jewish society. So. Jewish intellectuals critique Christianity. They critique Gentile power structures. They critique, you know, every aspect of, of non-Jewish society. Uh, how open do you think Jews would be to non-Jews writing books critiquing Jewish power and Jewish institutions and Jewish practices and uh, Jewish religion? You know, I... I... I the the fear that I mean the position that you have to put these things in some kind of I mean first of all let, let me go back to the, the first first point Jews critiquing non-Jewish society well they've also critiqued other other Jews in fact if you go back to the Bible it's all about Jews critiquing other other Jews I mean, it's just critiquing ambient norms whatever that might might be. So, um, you know, that, I, I think that would be the probably the more the more accurate way of of putting it. Uh, look, I'm not going to judge anyone in the 
abstract, I would have to see what they what they actually wrote, you know. But uh, let me give you an example that would that would illustrate my my concern. So you know that a couple years ago, you know, the new right was in vogue, okay, and yeah. you know, there was a Richard Spencer was the leader, and in conversations, you know, he could adopt you know a very theoretical tone comparable to what I'm hearing here, raise the same kinds of, of, of questions, uh, highlight the same kinds of potential double double standards on the Jewish question and, uh, and, and, and so forth, you know? And uh, he would, again, you know, he would have defended it. This is not any kind of, you know, visceral anti-Semitism. I'm, I'm just daring to take, take the questions where they, you know, further. But you know, a little, a little while later, when he became ultimately discredited, even uh, with with his his group, I think there was a divulgence of uh, some tape that took place after Charlottesville, and you know, his his language there revealed a certain level of uh, visceral hatred towards Jews and other modernities, other minorities, that was totally at odds with his more academic tone previously. Now, I would not say that. Everyone who adopts this academic tone has that in them necessarily, but it is uh, going back to what I said earlier. It is not unreasonable to suspect that that's there in light of overall human history. I, you know, I don't think I don't think you can take uh, these criticisms in a vacuum. We have to look at them in the context of history. I would also agree that by the same token. Uh, you cannot use the uh, historical context as a reason to shut off, you know, all debate and to say, you know, what you're saying here has some vague affinity to, you know, what the Nazis said then and therefore, because of this very vague affinity, I'm not going, or you know, I'm not going to talk to you at all. I'm resistant of that as as well. So you know, I would have to look at the concrete argument. And see how honest the, th- the person was being before I could arrive at any kind of concrete judgment of them in in particular. But I do think some degree of suspicion uh, is, uh, is 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 appropriate in, in light of uh, of history and what we know people to be to be like, which is that you know socially unacceptable uh, uh, objectionable impulses they they take refuge they assume uh, disguises. Facially less objectionable one, so I think you know too much of that, and you become woke and dogmatic and so forth. I I, I understand, but uh, it has it has a certain place as well. So you're implicitly saying that because of history, that there are, are good rational reasons to be highly skeptical and concerned about any non-Jew critiquing Jews. Are you, are you implicitly saying that the Jews win the suffering sweepstakes, therefore they should essentially be immune from criticism as a group? Well, I don't know. I, I, first of all, non-Jews criticizing Jews. I mean, why, if a non-Jew wants to criticize an idea voiced by a Jew, I'm certainly not not saying. No, no, no. I'm talking about group criticism. Right. Let's not get. We're talking group criticism. Well, Jewish scholars critique non-Jewish societies all the time. So we're talking here. Is it is it okay? Is it licit for for non-Jews to make uh, critical scholarship about Jews? Uh, is that 
effectively out of bounds because Jews win the suffering sweepstakes. Therefore, non-Jews no, are not allowed that. to engage in this. Well, you know, as, again, as 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 I said, I'm not I'm not going to you know uh, dismiss dismiss it as out, out of out of bounds at, at the at the in, at the instinct. I'm not I'm not saying that the historical suffering is a reason why it should be out of out of bounds, but I think it it is enough to raise a cert, a certain bar of suspicion which anyone who wants to ad advance those arguments should have to overcome so yeah jews in the west have been uh more affluent uh more educated and more successful than the non-jews they've lived among for at least 800 years so following the the direction of your argument that would mean that jews should be very very careful about criticizing non-Jews due to the uh, disproportionate uh, uh, poverty and, and you know, suffering that, that non-Jews have, have endured while Jews around them have thrived? Look, I, you know, I, I go around, you know, YouTube, I watch a lot of different videos, I'll scour the web. Like, I don't, I don't see, and maybe I'm not looking in the right places, you can refer me to it, but I don't see, like, a lot of Jews out there who are saying, well, here's the problem with the non-Jews. I don't know. I don't, I don't see that now. I'm not saying it doesn't exist, but it doesn't seem to be a, a, a routine feature of the, of the social landscape. If it, if it were, I might have a very different views, but it isn't, seem that way to me. I don't know. Yeah, no, I agree with you. Like Jews are the most patriotic group in America behind you know, white European uh, non-Jews. Like, you know, they're, they're more patriotic about America than, than any other minority group. But I'm just thinking out loud here because what's, what's so awesome about your memoir is all sorts of things that I've never thought about uh, that, that I take for granted that I think it's called the tacit suddenly becomes revealed. And right. then I, I'm then extending that to my own life experience as someone who, who grew up a Protestant converted to Orthodox Judaism. And I'm just thinking out loud, there's this whole awful moral category of anti-Semitism, but there's no category of anti-Gentilism. And so I'm just seeing how frequently the game is twisted it, 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 through, you know, unspoken tacit assumptions, like we need to be really concerned about anti-Semitism, but anti-Gentilism isn't even a thing. Yet in, in my lived experience, proportionally just as many Jews have negative feelings about non-Jews as non-Jews have negative feelings about Jews, yet only one of these things is real. The other thing is never even spoken about. But your, your reference point is the Orthodox community, correct? Uh, largely, but I mean, I know enough... I, I know I know enough uh, other Jews, but yeah, the more intense your in-group identity, the more likely you are to have negative feelings about out-groups. Sure, that's well, yeah. that's universal. I mean, look, the the Orthodox Jews are in a certain way still living in uh, in pre-modernity, and so they will certainly tolerate a degree of ethnocentrism, which is not tolerated in the society at large. You know. And and then I, yeah, I guess people are not going to delve into that because of you know historical concern with with anti-Semitism. But this kind of you know ethnocentric uh, parochialism that you are uh, describing among Jews again, I I, I can imagine that being uh, to an extent accurate in certain Orthodox 
groups, I, 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 that's that's a very um, that's a small proportion of Jews in in America. From your, you know, I, I know what you're what you're what you're what you're saying. Um, you know, um, I, I just I, I, I think I think it only makes sense in that community that you're discussing. Wait, you you spent time in Israel. Isn't there a widespread sense in Israel that you know America is pretty easy to take advantage of? Um. Well, you wouldn't see it as taking advantage of it unless you oppose the policy in the first place. But they don't. They don't. You know, they 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 think that the U.S. supports Israel for for rational reasons. Therefore, they don't see anything you know manipulative. Really, uh, really, they, they the don't feel like they're putting one over. I mean, the everyday person. I mean, maybe the the political tactician is obviously obviously has to think in manipulative terms. But if you're talking about everyday people, yeah, everyday Israelis, they don't think that Americans are gullible and naive, and they're, they're friars. Isn't that the Israeli term, friar, a sucker? Rapper, yeah. Isn't, isn't sort of that a, isn't yeah. that a fairly widespread assumption that compared to your fellow Jew, the 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 American goy is a friar? I I have not heard those those. Uh, sentiments uh you know voiced i i know certainly um you know when i was there uh when i was uh 20 it was a junior year abroad uh in uh in in, in israel you know i, I mean people saw Americans. they thought there were certain you know peculiarities to uh to, to to americans i mean some of them you know uh we thought there was a certain superficiality among some Americans, and that's that's a view you would get among you know the Europeans who are studying abroad, as well. But in terms of uh, the gullibility of the general gullibility of Americans, I have not uh, received uh, that sense. Certainly not you know among my 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 own relatives. I imagine you know people in in high tech in Israel probably certain have strong connections with. Uh, with American high tech, um, when they see I, I, Israeli, I, I don't see that generalization floating around. When they see Israeli politicians, you know, going to churches and like you know having hands placed on them by you know Christians who are super pro-Israel. Oh sure, okay, yeah. In that, in that, in that context, yes. I mean, they are most of them are secular-minded enough to think these evangelicals are a little bit ridiculous, but. They know that the evangelicals are uh, an important source of support. So yeah, I agree. In, with respect to them, you know, like the uh, uh, American Christians for Israel or all those kinds of groups. Yeah, there's a certain disingenuity, a certain calculatedness with them. But I, I, but again, I, I just think like you are you, you have a specific context in 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 mind, and in that context, I, I think you're seeing something. But you, just, you seem to be generalizing it far beyond that context. And you describe in chapter six of your book on academia that, that your story at, at Stanford was also a particularly Jewish story. So talk to me. I, I read it and I can't, uh, I can't repeat it back. So I, I, I would like to hear you spontaneously talk about the, the Jewish story of your time at Stanford. I'd like to well, hear you, you know, talk is, out loud rather than just, you know, reading fairly dense Nietzschean analysis. Um, I, 
I can only, you know, without 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 delving into the particular arguments that I have in in uh, uh, you, you're talking about the, the critical theory of academia, correct? No, you wrote, yeah, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, chapter no, no, six. I, I have, yeah. I have, yes. In the, in the memoir, I have intimations. Yes. Uh, just you know, without without much substance yes. there, just intimations of the issues that I'm going to that I try to tackle at at significant depth in the critical theory of academia. One chapter being the Jewish interpretation of events at, at Stanford. So in the memoir, there's mere intimation. There's not there's not uh, much substance uh, there. But um, and and you know and it's it's intimately related to the gaslighting, and I don't want to go into the details of that here, just because you have to have have uh, read that. But it is it is I think. Uh, a, a realization uh, on my part that even though, you know, certainly as I grew up, I had, you know, little time for going to, to, you know, reform synagogue. And uh, I have a, a hard time entertaining uh, theistic, uh, theistic beliefs. I think there, you know, there's a certain uh, adversarial impulse in, uh, in Judaism that can be articulated in, uh, in 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 secular in secular terms, uh, a break between the Jews and the wider society, uh, and uh, so I, I do say that in a sense, the the rebellion against Stanford can be seen as uh, as an expression of those tendencies. And you also experienced, you know, visceral uh, Jewish uh, connections and. And, and bonds with with many of the the Jewish uh, professors. I mean, this was I, part I, of I, your journey. Yes, I think I, I kind of put it that way. That sort of you know, um, the perhaps unrealistic or uh, you know expectation that things would go my way could be justified by reference to Nietzsche's uh, interpretation of uh, of Judaism. You know, placing placing uh, yourself, and you know, because they reject my efforts. I think I, I, I lob uh, an accusation of anti-Semitism at them. You know, I'm kind of just having fun there because it's anti-Semitism in the metaphysical sense uh, uh, in the context of Nietzsche's, Nietzsche's theory. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, I, I do think that on, on, on some level, there were these uh, historical tensions and forces at play in my uh experience that were viscerally felt at first but but their reality is proven by the fact that i could later go to go and art articulate them uh through philosophy and i i think there is um an uncanny mirroring of my experience in a lot of these uh, passages, certainly in uh, in Nietzsche's discussion of of Judaism, but also you know in some of the characterizations of of uh, Bordeaux in uh, in Kafka and uh, before the law, which some might see as a as a Jewish parable, as as, as well. And there you can definitely see the the parallels between the gaslighting and the story. Um, so. Uh, I'm not uh, certainly embracing Judaism in any theological sense, but I do feel there is 
some kind of uh, Jewish impulse that I'm kind of struggling to articulate. There was a book written by an American academic, John Murray Cudahy, in 1972 called Ordeal of Civility, talking about mm-hmm. the Jewish struggle with modernity. And I, I think you, you, you notice in your, in your memoir, you, you write in your memoir about how you and, and another Jewish professor, and I, I'm sure this probably happened numerous times, that you all realized that you were playing this, this social politeness, courtesy game, but that it was all bullshit. Uh, so, so you, you were all enduring the ordeal of civility, but yes, you well, were Hamish enough to, you know, or you recognize that it was, it was bullshit. Yes. Well, I mean, as soon as, uh, the events of September, 2009 break, you know, broke out at that point with every communication, there was always a, a tension between the official meaning and the subterranean meaning that was informed by uh, events which were never officially acknowledged. acknowledged. So yeah, there, there is a, a certain uh, forced uh, disingenuity on, uh, on, 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 on both sides. You know, it's almost uh, something, something, you know, almost neurotic about it in some ways, but my feeling was, you know, we'll take, take it to its logical conclusion. You know, the, the, the road of excess leads to the palace of uh, of wisdom, as uh, as Blake says, and that's I think what I was trying to do by just embracing what is on its face uh, a very untenable uh, social situation. And, but like civility is something of an ordeal for for Jews because our our and I'm saying this as a convert, but the, the, the de facto way of, of relating to your fellow Jews is, is Hamish. It is, it is family and it's much more verbally intense than usually the Goyim are, are used to. So yeah. civility is something of an ordeal and something of, of a separate state apart from the, the natural Jewish way of, you know, interchanging with fellow Jews. Well, I, uh, certainly that is, that is uh born out, uh, by the uh, by the by some some you know Americans uh, uh, experiences in uh, in Israel where they, they find people to be quite quite you know forward to the point of uh, a rudeness in ways they're not uh, they're not they're not they're not used to. So I think you know, there's probably some some you know other uh, loud verbal cultures as uh, as as well. You know, to what extent is it is it a a Jewish thing versus a, a a Mediterranean thing, you know. I'm not. Uh, I'm not. I'm, I'm not sure. But yeah, that's that's there. Now, I, I've often, as someone who grew up a Protestant, where we were taught to be polite and to not overstate and not to get emotional. Uh, I often witness, uh, particularly in in legal and academic and and places of, of verbal exchanges, non-Jews just getting intimidated by Ashkenazi intensity. Like the way that Ashkenazi Jews go at, at a discussion, like even if it's like, you know, what we're going to eat for lunch, like that's outrageous. That's going to kill me. Like this is worse than Auschwitz. Yeah. Non-Jews do not talk this way. Like non-Jews do not routinely, you know, say that the, you know, that the food is worse than Auschwitz. And, and I see them like frequently just kind of being like taken aback Um frightened, disgusted, and intimidated by Ashkenazi verbal intensity, 
what have you noticed? Huh. I mean, are you from just to clarify the uh, the origins of your experience? Are you speaking of uh, Orthodox Jews who no, all, all feel... Jews. Like, uh, I mean, Jews are Middle Eastern people originally. Uh, Middle Easterners tend to be much more verbally intense. Like, if, if two Arabs get into an auto right. accident, they will tend to gesticulate much more than if two Anglicans get into sure. a, an auto accident. Yeah. So, so I see like particularly Ashkenazi verbal intensity. It, you know, frequently just goes to 10 out of 10, you know, for, for some of the most, you know, minor things. And and most, you know, people who come from my uh, Protestant, you know, Anglo-Protestant upbringing are just appalled and, and sometimes they're intimidated and, and, and disgusted. It's just a whole different level of intensity and disputation. And as you went to law school, and as you probably know, a lot of philosophers and lawyers, and you spent much of your life in argumentation, I'm just curious if you have noticed the same phenomenon, or maybe it hasn't shown up for you. I wouldn't, I wouldn't in that context, because anybody who is going to find themselves in academic philosophy or academic law uh, is going to be disposed towards that kind of argumentative intensity, whatever their whatever their backgrounds. Now, which is not to say that there cannot be contexts where what you're describing uh, occurs. You know, um, there's a uh, there's a movie, uh, Robert Redford uh, quiz show. Yes, uh, it's, uh, it's yes. A long, it's a great movie. It's a long time since yes. I remember it, but it certainly. It highlights the the differences between some sort of you know the, the genteel uh, Anglo-Saxon Protestant and uh, yeah this this more more verbal and self-expressive you know lower class Jew. Uh, so you know that was certainly there at uh, at some point in history. Uh, the extent uh, to which it is. Uh, Today I'm not I'm not sure, and just because you know, even if Jews haven't haven't changed, certainly the the prestige of the Wasp culture has has eroded. So the kinds of norms uh, against which Jewish self-expressiveness or gesticulation might be offensive have 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 eroded and provide less support for that kind of judgment today than they might have, you know. Before the before the wasps were 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 toppled in the in the sixties. Okay, so this is not a phenomenon that you're seeing on a regular basis. Well, no, you know, I, I no. do see it on, on a regular basis, and I'm just like, wow. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, I mean, you certainly you certainly run in a different milieu than than me. I think that's that's quite clear. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so is there anything that you want to cover before we wrap things up for today? And you know, we can carry this on on, a, on another stream on, on another day. But is for there sure. is there a topic or well, a question you'd like to address? Before not not we wrap a topic up or a, or a, or a question. I, I'll just say that I you know I definitely uh, enjoyed this interview. This is my 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 first YouTube uh, interview, and you, you know, really the the. The first time I've discussed the the book, uh, not the first time, maybe maybe the second time, uh, you're the second person with whom I've discussed the book at length who has like read the whole the whole thing. And you know, I, I don't expect that people will have a, a, a super concrete sense of uh, of what it is, but I, I hope that your own uh, your review combined with our our interactions is going to be enough to uh, to prompt people just to uh, to take that leap of. Uh, faith and you know there is there is some there there yeah 
absolutely there's plenty of there there and uh we'll we'll carry on this this conversation so thanks thanks ronnie thanks for talking to me well, thanks, and, thanks so much Liz. I, I enjoyed speaking with you i, I did too and uh, take care everyone bye-bye